pray. Heavenly Father, please give me strength and grace to speak your word rightly and give us all uh, the humility and uh, grace to hear your word rightly and respond to it rightly uh, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Uh, so I was thinking uh, this week uh, that there are some prayers that are very dangerous to pray. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, but last week we saw how having uh, this supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost uh, should lead us to be filled with compassion uh, for the thousands of people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it should lead us to have a prayerful commitment to the salvation of the lost, that we'd be on our knees seeking the Lord of the harvest, Jesus, uh, that he would raise up more and more workers for the harvest field, that he'd be sending them out, uh, that they might ga- be gathered in for salvation. And what we're going to see today uh, is that praying that prayer is extremely dangerous. And praying the prayer that the Lord Jesus would raise up workers for the harvest field is a dangerous prayer to pray. Uh, Christ is eager to answer that prayer and he'll probably send you out into the harvest field. That's why it's dangerous. You'll end up being the answer to your own prayer. You'll be sent out yourself. Uh, There are lots of prayers like that. That's what Jesus does with his disciples right here, right? His disciples are praying at the start of chapter 10. Uh, They're praying as Jesus has commanded them that that, uh, that he, the Lord of the harvest, would send out workers into the harvest field. Uh, And in verses 1 to 5, Jesus gathers them together and says, Guess what? You are the answer to your own prayer. I'm sending you out. And of course, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Catherine already alluded to this, uh, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, Jesus commands all his disciples to go. To go out into all parts of the world to make disciples of all nations. I say he commands us because the word uh, instructions, if you look in verse 5 of our passage, it says uh, Jesus gathered his disciples together. Uh, He gathered them to give them instructions. That word instructions is the word that uh, would normally be used of a commanding officer giving orders to his soldiers. This is not just a little dialogue, or you could do this if you like. This is Jesus, uh, the King, the Messiah, our commanding officer, commanding his disciples to go. Jesus uh, commands us all to go. That's what he does at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Having said that, uh, we do have to be careful in how we apply this passage. Right, but because these are the instructions in this chapter uh, are given to these particular disciples at this time. So we've got to be a little bit careful with how we apply them. Uh, but it is true that Christ commands us all to go. Right, he commands us to go to, to where first there is great need. To go where there's great need. Have a look in verses 5 and 6. Uh, Jesus says, uh, do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Right? This is the first example of how we've got to be careful with how we apply this passage. Right? You could say, see, Jesus is, is only on about saving the Jews. Right? Even today. Right? So that's how we're going to apply it. Forget about reaching anyone else. We've got to go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Right? But, but that's not the case, is it? This is a direction to these disciples at this particular time. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, go to all the nations. Go to the Gentiles, he explicitly commands that. But here he says to these 12 apostles, apostles, focus your mission on the Jews. I remember last week, who did Jesus see? He saw the lost sheep of Israel, scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He lamented the fact that their leaders weren't teaching them rightly from the Bible. And so here he sends his disciples out first, his 12 apostles, uh, to the lost sheep of Israel. But despite the fact that the focus of the mission is different, there's lots we can learn from their mission. In verses 7 and 8, 
Uh, Let me read verses 7 and 8. As you go, Jesus says, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, uh, drive out demons. Uh, The first first thing we've got to notice is what's the focus of the mission? Have a look in verse 7. The focus of the mission is proclaiming the message. It's an announcement. It's announcing that the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's our primary mission still today. Our primary mission is proclaiming something. It's communicating. It's sharing the good news of the kingdom. We've got to remember that because sometimes, I don't know how many times you've sat in amongst a group of Christians and they say, yeah, 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 but I'm doing my mission primarily by living out the gospel. That's my primary mission. Or, uh, yeah, but what about that quote that says, uh, preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words? You've heard that quote? We can't hide behind that quote. We can't. There's a message to be announced. There's content. There's good news to be proclaimed. Yes, we've got to live out. Yes, we've we've got to practice what we preach. Our our words, our, our deeds have to match our words. Of course, all that, all that. But the message has to come. Oh, we announce this good news, the good news that Jesus is king and that in his coming, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what we've been seeing in chapters, uh, Matthew uh, chapters 8 to 10. Right? That when the kingdom of heaven comes near, uh, it brings about the possibility of forgiveness and life and peace and restoration, all these things that we've been seeing. It's incredible news. It's news to be declared. That's our primary mission, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And we're to proclaim that news, uh, Jesus says, where there is great need. Right, that's what the four commands in verse 8 are about. Right, so first, have a look there. Jesus orders his disciples to heal the sick. Once again, we've got to be careful with how we apply this. Uh, none of us here are apostles. Sorry to break that to you. Right? Uh, none of us are apostles. None, none of us have personally witnessed Jesus in the flesh. None of us have been personally commissioned by Jesus, uh, so none of us have the unique authority of an apostle, in this case, to heal the sick. But I'm not saying that God can't heal people today. God can heal people. We should pray that he would heal people. Uh, But I am saying that Christ gave these apostles a, a unique authority in this time and place to heal the sick. It's a unique authority. Even if you read the Bible, uh, there are, it's not like people are, are kind of performing uh, healings all over the place. Right? The healings are concentrated in particular periods of time when God gives unique authority to unique individuals. That's what's happening with these apostles. Uh, so, so they're given this unique authority to heal the sick. But remember verse 7. What's the focus of this mission? The focus is on proclaiming the message of the gospel. And remember, I've been saying as we've worked through this section of Matthew's Gospel that Matthew's primary concern uh, is really not to show us that Jesus has the power to heal us physically, but that he has the power to heal us spiritually. That's what he's driving at with all this healing going on. It's about the ultimate healing work that Jesus does. So in chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus said, uh, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Remember the context there? He's explaining uh, why is it that he's spending all his time with sinners, right? tax collectors and sinners, Matthew and his friends. Right? Why is it? It's because those people know that they're spiritually sick. They know that they have to come to Jesus for their ultimate healing, for the forgiveness of their sins. All right, so the principle here is that when we go out proclaiming the gospel, we should go to the people who know that they're sick. 
we should proclaim the message, the good news of the kingdom to them, that they might embrace the forgiveness that the gospel offers and be healed. Not just healed physically, but healed spiritually for eternity. So we go to those uh, who know that spiritually speaking, they've got a disease. That's my first D. You know I love alliteration, right? So spiritually speaking, they know they've got this disease, right? The disease of sin. Uh, we go to them, we proclaim the gospel that they might be healed. Uh, second, Jesus orders his disciples to raise the dead. Uh, once again, I don't think, I mean, you hear stories. Of course you hear stories about Christians being able to raise the dead. I, I get that you hear those stories. Uh, but for the most part, Christians today, I don't think, have the authority to do that. Which is why the, most churches don't have one of their primary ministries, including us, down at the local morgue. Like, well, we could uh, put the morgues out of business, right? Like, if Christians could do this, why aren't we down there raising the dead all the time? We know we can't do that. Jesus has the power to raise the dead. Right? So, so we, we, we can't do this, I don't think. We don't have the, the unique authority of these apostles, uh, but we do have the power to proclaim the gospel that raises the spiritually dead. Right? That it's good news for those who've cut themselves off from God, the source of all life, and they can hear how they can be made alive in Christ both now and forever through his resurrection power, you see. So we go to the disease, those who know that they're sick, and we go to those who are dying, who are dead spiritually. Third, we go to the despised. Jesus orders his disciples to cleanse people with leprosy. Once again, I don't think we can do that. We don't have that authority, which is why organisations like the Leprosy Mission still exist. If not, we could just gather all the Christians in the world and go and deal with leprosy. But what we can do is care for and proclaim the gospel to people in our society who are despised, who are ostracized, who are rejected, just like people in the first century with leprosy were in that category. They were despised. And Jesus says, go to those people. Go to the people on the margins of society, the people who were rejected. Proclaim the gospel to them, the good news of the kingdom. Fourth, Jesus orders his disciples to drive out demons. Uh, In the New Testament, people who were demon-possessed were also said to be filled uh, with unclean spirits. They were spiritually unclean, so they had to be outside the camp, outside the town. They couldn't come into contact with other people. Uh, So Jesus is saying, when you go, go to the people uh, who are considered to be unclean, who are impure, who are are dirty. It's my fourth D. He commands his disciples to go to where there's great need to proclaim the gospel, uh, where people are diseased and dying and despised and dirty. Go to the people that everyone else ignores, everyone else excludes. Go to them, Jesus said. And that's a really hard mission to do. And so look in verses 9 and 10, Jesus gives a promise. He says, when you go, don't get any uh, gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth uh, his keep. Right? This is a promise. Jesus is assuring his disciples that when they reach out to these people who are in great need, they'll discover that, that Jesus uh, is not only able to provide for the people they're reaching out to's needs, but for their needs too. They don't have to fear that. They don't have to take extra stuff with them as if Jesus isn't able to provide for them. The worker is worth his keep, Jesus says. You can commit to this mission knowing that I will provide for your needs. I've got you covered, Jesus is saying. Don't act as if I don't. 
Go to great need, Jesus says. Secondly, he says, go to where there's great danger. Have a look down in verse 16. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Like sheep among wolves. Uh, Maybe uh, if you've been around church a bit, uh, that's maybe a relatively well-known saying. But I think we have to let it sink in. Let's think in a bit, because this is Jesus. Remember last week we talked about how Jesus uh, is our good shepherd? Uh, Jesus is our shepherd uh, who, uh, who's supposed to protect his sheep. He's the shepherd who's supposed to lay down his life for his sheep. And yet here he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Like, What's with that? I don't know much about sheep. I didn't grow up on a farm or anything, but I'm reliably informed that sheep are one of the most, uh, the dumbest animals, and and also uh, one of the most helpless animals. They they don't have many defence mechanisms. The main thing they can do is run, and uh, they're not very fast, particularly in comparison to a wolf. Right? That, that that's kind of the point here. What Jesus is saying, he's saying to his disciples, "I'm sending you out on mission, and I want you to know that sometimes you'll be like sheep among wolves." You'll be in situations of immense danger and you'll look helpless and foolish and weak. And isn't that what uh, most people think about Christian missionaries? At least the the hardcore ones. You know, what what on earth are they doing? Don't they know how foolish that is? Don't they know how crazy that is? Don't they know how dangerous it is? Like, it's nuts! Gabby and I, some of us here have some friends, uh, Gabby and I as well, and and others who uh, used to go to Bandura Presbyterian Church. And uh, like we've got some friends who have uh, their four young children and their couple, and and they're kind of living in remote Niger, uh, in sort of sub-Saharan desert. Uh, They built a a mud brick house, which is tiny, and they all sleep on the floor in this place. Like, what are they crazy? What are they doing? And Jesus says that's, that's part of his plan. He sends his disciples out, knowing that they'll uh, find themselves in the midst of wolves, that they'll be in dangerous situations where vicious people are surrounding them who want nothing more than to tear them to bits. That's the picture. Right? And, and we, we struggle with this idea because we've convinced ourselves that if something is God's plan, if it's God's will, uh, it's going to be safe. It's going to be safe, right? It probably won't even be uncomfortable, right? But because God's will is to keep us comfortable and safe, right? That's that's His plan for your life, right? But that's not true, is it? God's will is not to keep us uh, comfortable, and it's not even always to keep us safe. Yes, of course, we're eternally secure, secure in, in, in Jesus' right hand. No one can snatch us out of His hand. Uh, but here Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. We're going to come to the book of Revelation in the next few weeks, where Jesus says it's part of his plan that a certain number of Christians would die for the sake of taking the gospel to the nations. There's a certain number that have to die for the sake of taking the gospel out. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Go to the dangerous places, Jesus is saying. Now, that's not the full story. Have a look at the rest of the verse. Jesus says, uh, be as shrewd as snakes. Right, so on the one hand, we've got to be as foolish as sheep, and on the other hand, as wise as snakes, as shrewd as snakes. What does that mean? I think it means uh, that we've got to be prepared to, to kind of go uh, recklessly almost, 
without excuse or delay or reservation into situations of great danger, right, where we're sheep among wolves. Uh, but once we get to those situations, we're to be as wise or as shrewd as a snake. In essence, Jesus is saying, you, you've got to walk the same path as me. I remember before the Jewish and Roman authorities, Jesus was like a sheep among wolves. You read Isaiah 53. Isaiah even says that, that Jesus was led out like a lamb to be slaughtered. You picture him there, surrounded by people who, who want nothing more than to tear him to bits. They did tear him to bits. A sheep among wolves. But in that situation, Jesus was shrewd, wasn't he? He was wise. He spoke with, with clarity, with wisdom, with integrity, so that they had absolutely no reason to accuse him. He was as foolish as a sheep, but as wise as a snake. And here Jesus says, that's the path you have to walk. If you want to be one of my disciples, don't think you're going to walk a path that's any different to me. You're walking in my footsteps. You go out like sheep to be slaughtered, but act as, as wisely as snakes. So what does that mean? I think it means that for the sake of Christ's mission, uh, we ought to not shirk going into dangerous situations, risky situations. But in those situations, we, we should do everything we can not to be abrasive or inconsiderate or rude. We don't want to give people a reason to accuse us. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Be as foolish as sheep, be as wise as snakes. And once again, that's a hard ask, isn't it? It's a tall order. So Jesus gives another promise. There's one in verses 9 and 10. There's another here in verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. If you're in a dangerous situation for the sake of Christ, don't worry, don't be afraid. This is hard, right? But don't be afraid because by the power of his spirit, your heavenly father will give you the right words to say. That's Jesus' promise. So you see the two promises, right? If you go to the needy, don't worry about it because your, your heavenly father will provide for all your needs. When you go into danger, don't worry about it because your heavenly father will give you the right words to say. Uh, Jesus wants us to know th three other things about this mission of going into danger. Three other things. First, uh, he wants us to know that we'll be betrayed. Have a look in verse 21. Uh, he says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. I get that. You, you'll be betrayed, Jesus is saying, even by those who are closest to you even by your family. Have a look in verses 34 to 36. Jesus says, uh, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a second, where does that fit? Like, peace on earth, goodwill to all men? Isn't that the Christmas message? Right? Don't, don't, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, Jesus says. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Right? What's Jesus saying? He's saying uh, that his kingdom is like a sword because it divides people. Oh, yeah, you're, you're either with Jesus or you're against him. And so if you follow Jesus, if you commit to this mission, some people will betray you. 
Some people. It might even be the people closest to you, your own family. Right? That's why. Look back in, uh, in verse 4. Matthew specifically says that one of Jesus' 12 apostles, right, his inner circle, one of his closest friends on planet Earth, was Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. That's why Matthew mentions that. The disciples of Jesus can expect nothing less than the one that they're following. That's the first thing, we'll be betrayed. Second, in verse 22, Jesus says, All men will hate you because of me. And now, I don't think Jesus is saying, uh, like, every single human being on the planet is going to hate you, when he says, all men will hate you, right? But he is saying that if you follow him, if you, if you kind of identify with him, uh, you're going to be hated. You see, in this chapter, it might be your family, it might be the government, it might be the media, it might be your peers, it might even be the mainstream religious establishment. Right? Look in verse 17, Jesus says uh, that his disciples are going to be flogged in the synagogue, The point is, if you follow Christ, you'll be hated because you're identifying with him. You're you're so closely connected with him. If they hated him, they'll hate you. That's what Jesus is saying. If they betrayed him, they'll betray you. If he was a sheep amongst wolves, you'll be a sheep amongst wolves. Third, in verse 23, Jesus says, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. So he says, when you're persecuted. When. Not, Not if. Once again, this is because we're connected to Jesus. That's the whole point of that thing in verses 24 and 25, where Jesus says, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teacher and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been uh, called Beelzebul, how much more the members of the household? Jesus is saying, I was persecuted. He's just been told. Remember at the end of chapter 9, he was just told that his ministry is empowered by Beelzebul. That's Satan, not empowered by God. Jesus was persecuted. So if you want to be a student of Jesus, a servant, a member of Jesus' household, you'll expect to be persecuted. That's what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. Now, this is important. Uh, Because some Christians seem to think that if we could all just be a little bit more like Jesus, everyone would love us. If we could just be more Christ-like, we'd just be so attractive and everyone would be falling over head over heels wanting to become Christians. In this passage, Jesus says, uh, in some ways, the more like him we become, the more some people will betray us and hate us and persecute us. It's a bit confronting. And that's actually what happened for the first 300 years of Christianity, right? Uh, I don't know if you know this, but underneath uh, the city of Rome, uh, there are, the Christians built thousands of tombs, and the tombs were for people who lost their lives for the sake of Christ. And on those tombs, if we can get... Uh, we've got this fish. You've seen this fish before, but if we can flick it up, a, a picture of this fish. All right. Uh, oh, there's a little... Yeah, good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they put these fish on the tomb. Right? I don't know if you know where this fish came from. Uh, the, the Greek word for fish is ichthus, and that uh, was, is an acrostic for Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Saviour. So each letter of the, the word fish uh, means a different uh, kind of aspect of, of who Jesus is. And so every Christian who died for the sake of Christ would put this fish on their tomb. Right? They're publicly saying, this is who I died for. But I want you to know, I lost my life for the sake of Jesus Christ, Son of God, my Saviour. 
Now, isn't that funny? Because what do we do with these fish? Well, we don't stick them on our tombs. We stick them on our new car. We stick them on our new car. It's pretty sacrificial. Right? Like, I, I, I think about this. Like some Christians, I, I read a book uh, recently uh, called um, Stories, from the, Stories from the Front, uh, amazing stories of missionaries around the world. And I just think, these people are like going through war-torn countries uh, under fire uh, from you know machine guns and, and the places they're trying to live are being bombed just to take the gospel, the treasure of this good news of the kingdom. And I'm sticking a fish on my car. Jesus says, go into great danger for the sake of this mission. Now, of course, the natural response to all that is to be afraid, right? All this talk of being a sheep amongst wolves. Uh, so, look, in verses 26 to 31, Jesus gives us four ways to confront our fear. And you might want to note them down. I didn't put them in the outline, but they're important. Uh, first, look in verse 26. Jesus says, if you want to confront your fear, uh, you have to keep things in perspective. There's nothing concealed, Jesus says, that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. But if you start living the Christian life, it doesn't take long before you realize that uh, how you think about the world and your values and your beliefs, uh, that, that's all quite different to how the people around you think. Right? That, that can be inti- intimidating. Right? You're going against the flow of culture. And who really wants to end up on the wrong side of history? Right? We've heard a bit about that in the last 12 months. Who wants to be that kind of person? Uh, so what does Jesus say here? He says, don't be afraid. Because at the end of history... What the world believes will be disclosed for what it is. It's false. And what, the, and what you believe will be shown for what it is. It's true. That's this point here. You've got to live with that final day in mind. You've got to keep things in perspective. Don't get caught up in the moment. Don't kind of think that you've just got to go with the flow of culture. Remember where history's headed, to that great day when everything is revealed. Keep an eternal perspective, Jesus is saying. Play the long game. Uh, Verse 27, Jesus says, uh, so first thing, keep your perspective. Verse 27, Jesus says, speak boldly. What I tell you in in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Now, you know, Jesus' disciples have been in the inner sanctum. He's taught them lots of things in private, in secret. And now he's saying it's it's time to proclaim those truths publicly. In the daylight, from the rooftops. It's time to to come out of the closet, as it were. I'm no longer a private Christian. My faith is just between me and Jesus. I hope that people notice my good deeds in the workplace. He's saying, no, 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 that there's words to be shared, to be proclaimed. And and we know that if we do that, some people are going to reject us. And what that means is we have to be really clear on who we fear most. Whose opinion matters most? That's where verse 28 comes in. Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is pretty radical. What Jesus is saying, he's saying no person, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how influential they are in your life, no person holds your eternal destiny in their hand. No person. Only God does that. So this is Jesus' remedy for fear. Don't be afraid of anyone because the worst they can do is kill you. 
Oh, that's just basically what well, The worst they can do is kill you, as Paul says in Philippians 3, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's how you, that is actually quite liberating, if you think about it. We have to fear God supremely. His opinion has to be the one that matters most to us. And fourth, if we want to confront our fears, uh, we have to be assured of our Heavenly Father's love for us. Look in verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your Father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Right here, Jesus is saying, if you go into danger for the sake of uh, my mission... Uh, your heavenly Father will care for you. You can know that uh, because He rules; He's sovereign over every single part of your life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying not, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father's command. Right? How much more is He in control of every detail of your life? He rules your life sovereignly, and He'll care for you because He knows you intimately. Now, I'm not sure whether to ask this because uh, Gary's here today, but I was going to say, uh, uh, who in this room knows how many hairs are on their head? So I'm just going uh, 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 Gary's got a few hairs. Uh, anyway, my point is, like, not many of us know how many hairs are on our head, right? But our Heavenly Father does. That's what Jesus said. Right? Our Heavenly Father knows us intimately. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. And so he knows how to care for us. But he knows better what we need than we know what we need. Sometimes we're praying. I don't know if you're doing that. You're praying to God. If you really understood what I needed, then you'd give me this or that or take this away. He understands what you need. He knows better what you need than you know. And most importantly, your Heavenly Father will care for you because he loves you. He treasures you. He values you. You see, Jesus says, Are you not worth more than many sparrows? Now, Jesus is not saying that, that uh, your Heavenly Father doesn't value sparrows. He, he's a fan of sparrows. He loves sparrows. He's a, he treasures sparrows. But he, he loves and treasures you a whole lot more, he's saying. You are his, his precious child, the one bought through the blood of his son. He's going to care for you. You can be assured of his love for you. And finally, verse 39. Jesus calls us to find our life by being willing to lose our lives. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Uh, Lots of people, in a sense, try to find their life. They they try to uh, find a true life by following their heart. That's that's what our culture is on about. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to kind of follow your your deepest passions, and uh, so you've got to be you've got to follow your heart. Like that, that's where you're going to find true life. You might reject Jesus. You you think that uh, kind of following Him uh, is not going to bring you the same happiness or freedom or life. Uh, So you're busy following your heart. And Jesus says, if you try to find life by following your heart, ultimately you'll lose your life. If you reject Jesus, Jesus just said, uh, your body and soul will be destroyed in hell. Similar passage in, in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus says, what good is it for man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Well, you follow your heart. You might be rich or famous or powerful or influential for a period of time. But what good is that if you forfeit your soul? 
Don't try to find life by following your heart, Jesus says. And don't try to find life by following the rules. Thinking that somehow you can save yourself, you can find true life through your prayers or giving or your obedience or your ministry or your, your level of sacrifice. Right? Aaron said, sacrificial mission. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go out and I'm going to save myself by... That's not what Jesus is saying. You don't save your life through your own works. So the point is that, if you, that, that the only way you can save your life, you can find your life, is by being willing not to follow your heart, not to follow the rules, but to follow Christ. To be someone who's willing to deny yourself, to take up your cross, as Jesus says, to lose your life for his sake. Why would you do that? Why would you make this sacrifice? It's because you realise that Christ is your only hope. That's the only point where you'll really do that, I think. When you realise that it's only through Christ's death on the cross that you can be forgiven for all the times you've rejected God. All the times when you've gone off following your heart. All the times when you've gone off following the rules. It's only through Christ's death on the cross that you can be saved. He is the only one who pays the cost of forgiveness. It's only through him. When you realise that, you'll be more than willing to find your life by losing your life for his sake. He's the only way. You've got to hold on to him. Uh, One of the great missionaries to China, C.T. Studd, Uh, It says, if Jesus Christ be God and was willing to die for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Uh, One of the songs we sometimes sing here at church, is it? Like, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you understand that Jesus, driven by his deep compassion for the lost, for you, uh, was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for you. right? He was willing to lose his life for you. If you really understand that, if that kind of grips your heart, uh, then you'll be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for him. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Not what can I spare, but what's it going to take to get this message of the gospel out there? Not what can I spare, but what's it going to take? Let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As I prayed at the beginning, I pray that we've been able to uh, hear your word rightly. And I pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would give us the grace and strength and humility uh, to respond to your word. Uh, To respond as we sing songs, to respond as we pray, to respond as we reflect and meditate on your word in our conversations after church and during the week. Uh, Please, Lord, uh, stir in us to be disciples who are willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you, who are willing to bear a cost for the sake of uh, getting the the good news of the kingdom out there. Help us, Father, uh, to know that if we do that, if we take up our cross, uh, then the crown of glory awaits us later. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.